And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Such a blessing, and uh, again, we're so richly blessed by those who lead us, and so very, very grateful for their voice to move our voices to worship. It's good to be with you. Find your way in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll look at this uh, perhaps familiar piece of instruction about marital fidelity and so on. But this morning, I hope to do this for you. I hope to show you that there's a set of convictions, some basic ideas from which the sound instruction, Christian instruction about marriage is grounded. I'm also worried that in today's church and in our nation as a whole, that such convictions are eroding, if not almost completely having vanished. I'd like you to read with me this text, but with a couple of things in mind. Keep in mind that in the time Jesus was born, the Roman occupying authorities lived lives that were by any standard, or by that, uh, a standard not so long ago, uh, a kind of crazy and defiant. Every sort of aberrant practice you can imagine was commonplace. We tend to think that if you lived through the 60s or early 70s and you saw New York in the early 70s, you, you saw some new standard of sort of depravity. Not at all. The Romans had it all, and what makes it so crazy is it, it's virtually everyone under them fell into this practice. Marriage, for example, in the time of Jesus was something that was kind of flippant and capricious. Couples didn't even do paperwork anymore. The partner that owned the property could just dismiss the person from their property. And it was understood that the person who had been dismissed could go and remarry again. Marriage even was a fluid. There was no need for polygamy because marriage was just simply an institution that hardly meant anything in Jesus' day in Roman practice. Now, Jewish practice marked an exception. But let me tell you, when Christians came onto the scene in this Roman world, their behavior was looked upon as weird and bizarre beyond belief. They had these strange and unimaginable ideas. For example, they restricted sexual behavior. That kind of intimacy could only be fit for marriage. Imagine that. And marriage was a commitment that was to endure for life. And the idea was it was in this confines of Christian marriage that this kind of personal intimacy was allowed. And outside, it was forbidden. This was nonsense to the Romans uh, around the Mediterranean rim that heard this message. It was just ludicrous. They can't imagine how someone could come up with such weird behavior. And we need to recover this idea that things weren't sort of normal by our conservative standards. 
and then got out of hand in the New Testament age. No, things were anything but normal. And what looked so weird was Paul and his articulation of this simple Christian discipline. It was scorned. It was not life-affirming. It was ridiculed by, at, 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 almost from every perspective. But Christians kept this up. Now, I want to ask you why. And I want to look, let you look at their motives for behaving the way they did and then the way Paul believes we should behave, the reason he thinks we should behave the way he prescribes. Now, it's a difficult passage. There's one piece, the, 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 sort of the setting. The other thing is the particular instruction about the passage. The truth is this. All of us agree, uh, almost all of us who read this agree, that Paul is doing something called a, a, a kind of a diatribe, an imaginary conversation with his enemies. And so he voices their line, and then he answers it. And he voices their line, and then he answers it. The trouble is now we have some trouble identifying what language he's attributing to his foes and what is his own language. And the, here is a place where your translations vary considerably. But we can press on, and I'll do my best to show you the ones that we're most confident in as reflecting the opinion of Paul's conversation partners here in Corinth. We'll start with verse 12 from chapter 6, and I'm reading from the New International Version. It says, I have the right to do anything, you say. That's what Paul thinks his enemies say. Your translation may say something like this. It's permissible for me to do whatever I like. All things are permissible. Paul answers, but not everything is beneficial. It doesn't all build up. He goes on, I have the right to do anything, he repeats. But Paul warns, but I will not be manipulated or mastered by anything. You say, Paul's quoting his enemies again, the food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. If you have a desire, you, you follow it. That's the idea. We're uncertain about this next line, but God will destroy both of them. The body, however, is meant, not meant, merely for sexual immorality, or sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Did you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in, in her in body? For it says, the two will become one flesh. Paul's quoting there, Genesis, as many of you know. But whoever is united, verse 17, with the Lord is one with him in spirit flee from sexual immorality perhaps echoing joseph the patriarch long ago a model of behavior and here's the controversial issue is this next line their line i believe it is all sins 
I, I would not put the word other in there. It doesn't actually appear in the text. They're trying to just help you understand the basic idea, but I think they may miss it. All sins that a person commits are outside the body. Paul answers, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you've received from God, you are not your own. Now get this, it's a big contrast. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to someone else. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And therefore, you should honor God with your bodies. So as hard as it is, I think we can get the big idea behind the sort of thinking of these folk who behave just any particular old way. And it goes like this. I can make my own choice. And Jimmy, I'm losing this, uh, I'm losing this. Can we switch to the mic here? I'm sorry. And so the uh, first item, can you hear me now? I'm sorry, I'll try to get, speak up for you. The first idea is something like this, what we would call in our day sort of autonomy. I can rule myself and I can decide for myself what I want to do. Now some of you confuse that with American values, but I would uh, warn you that I think that's politically kind of feeble. I don't know that I'll have time to address it, but I, I just want to tell you, I don't think that's what the founding fathers were about. The idea that you could just do anything you want. They were so interested in liberty and the ability to sort of pursue happiness and so on. But their idea was this, that there was a, a goal out there to achieve. And you had a potential and you were called to live up to your potential. The idea that you could just be free to do anything you wanted would never have moved any of our founders. That's not an idea worth fighting for. Are believing in. If, if, if all freedom is, is just I can do whatever I want, well what if you want to do something gross or terrible? And what if you're a human and that means you have a certain potential and you have a, a, a certain a kind of character and you can live and grow into that character, that's a great thing. And the founding fathers were all adamant about trying to defend that idea. But if you were a human and you wanted to be a, act like a pig, what's virtuous about that other than it's self-chosen? Is you choosing for yourself enough? That's a very thin notion of freedom. And by the way, I don't think that idea of freedom can sustain itself. People in antiquity, and it lasts even as long as people like our founding fathers, they thought there was something more about life that was structured and you had to live toward your fulfillment and toward your potential. And the idea of just doing whatever you wanted is finally thin. But that's where these folks in Corinth have sunk. Don't tell me there's a restriction. I can do whatever I can manage to do. 
you don't have permission and everything I would choose is permissible. That's the premise. And that's what you read in the very first verse. And the idea is something like this. I don't think that's a, a, an idea that can sustain itself. I think it's sort of shallow. And we can try to sound Christian by trying to defend people in this light. But I don't think it'll ever work. And then in verse 13, food's for the stomach and stomach for food. And the idea is sort of like this. If I have this desire, this inclination, then I should be able to satisfy it. And this idea that there's no place in self-denial and that freedom sort of makes it impossible for you to have self-denial and, and makes it uh, sort of unnecessary because that puts a terrible restriction on you. And I would just suggest to you that almost everything great you've ever achieved, you did in part because self-denial. If you learn music, it's because you decided not to do some other things and you decided to play the scales and do some things and some of them weren't particularly romantic and exciting, but at the same time, they opened the door for you. This idea that we will necessarily satisfy whatever desire we hold. That's just not a lifestyle and not a vision that can sustain itself. Then from verse 18, there's some others, but we'll jump to verse 18. Here's one other picture of Paul's opponents in this conversation. And they argue this way. That a person says, I'm a spiritual creature. I think what they mean by that is, I'm a spiritual creature, and I have a relationship with God, right? And, and I think this is behind a lot of people saying, I'm not religious, right? I'm spiritual. In other words, I, I have this connection with God somehow, and that's all I need. And frankly, the way I act and what I do, it, it, it doesn't matter. I think Paul faces the kinds of extremes uh, manifest in this kind of thinking in chapter 6 in the earlier portion. Uh, he's had young church members who've gone off to visit a prostitute. And he tells them, you, you, you can't do that. Your, your body matters. You can't behave that way. Now they're thinking, it's just the body, right? It doesn't matter. I can still maintain my spiritual place, right? I don't have to worry about the body. In, in the next chapter, Paul has kind of the other extreme People who are trying to deny any kind of physical kind of relationship whatsoever. Even marriage couples, it seems. And Paul has to correct them for the other extreme. Paul is trying to say the body does matter. And what we do with our bodies is of consequence to God. And by the way, I don't think it's a matter that's unrelated to our spiritual component, right? We're, we're sort of tied together. And so we can't just do these things and say, it doesn't matter, it's just the body. No, Paul says these kind of things can injure you terribly and threaten not only your body, but also your spiritual standing, your soul. And so Paul gives a set of warnings. All things are permissible. He answers, yeah, but are they beneficial? Do they build up one another? Do they promote health or, and well-being to you? And I think his answer is fairly obvious. 
if you think that there's something spiritual about who we are and our bodies and the way we live and there's spiritual stakes for how we live, then this kind of misbehavior does damage to everyone involved. I can do anything I want. Paul mimics them, kind of making a play on words I wish you could capture in English, but the idea is something like this. Yeah, but you're going to be mastered by those things. And then Paul, I think, makes several observations. And I've been helped here along the way by Gordon Fee and a man named Richard Hayes. And the three things that seem to define Paul and his strange mindset and the strange behavior to have such strict standards are these. One is the idea that our body is going to be raised. There's a resurrection. Jesus, uh, the New Testament, and Paul himself describes Jesus' work as not effective for us for salvation and unless there's a resurrection and the idea is this our bodies are not some fabric that's going to be discarded so that the real you can go on that was part of the problem there in Corinth they were depreciating and thinking the body was this expendable but Paul reminds them that the Christian story of how God wins his victory over the world is that it's not all done until he raises the dead and we will be joined with him with some sort of, Paul calls it a spiritual body, some sort of body fit for eternity that will go on and on and be our destiny. Step number one is this. Your body is important. God is playing keeps with all of you. There's not some good part of you, your spirit, that will survive, and the body is like a discarded part, like a, a, a stage in the rocket. Instead, there is this destiny that we will be as human beings, our psychic, our spiritual, our soul, our bodies, will be fitted for heaven and be with him forever and ever. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If you think that's in play, you cannot just appreciate the body. To think it's unimportant or that its behavior has no spiritual consequence, you can injure it and you can injure your very soul. The resurrection means we have to take the body seriously. You do not have a victory of Christ over the world and over sin unless you have the resurrection. That's part of the essential fabric for Paul. The other image that Paul uses is this. And he, he prefaces this, with, some of your translation catch it, with the idea, don't you know this? Don't, don't you know this? And here's one of these don't you knows. Don't you know that your body is a temple? Now, I think Paul's predominant way of describing this is to picture us as a local church. We're a temple. When we're gathered, we are Christ's body. That's the far and the way the emphasis in Paul figures on the corporate image, I think. But here's a place where I think the logic demands that we also think of our individual single bodies, our individual persons, as temples of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he says in verse 18, it's in you. And you've received that spirit from God. 
And, and so the image, and I can't take the time to trace it, but that image that's been so important all along, God's abiding place where the, his presence is made manifest. It's, it, it's his place. It's, it's where he dwells with us. It's, it, it's sort of the sign that he's not given up on us. And he has, has, still has a stake in this world. And he has presence among us. And that temple, remember the tabernacle, and then the temple building all along. It's destroyed and rebuilt and so on. Jesus then talks about knocking it down in three days and rebuilding it. And, well... It's not finished. I think Christians teach that Jesus is the abiding place for God's presence. But it's not finished until the spirit is poured out on the church. And now we become the place where the presence of the holy God is manifest in the world. And if you begin to see who you are and I am and we are the body are together. If you begin to see we're the place where God has marked out in this world to show his presence as a witness to the world, it's got to change the way we behave. Our body will be raised. Our body is the temple. And then this last one, our body belongs to the Lord. It's been crudely put, bought. Wow, how strange that is. It harkens back to Paul's image about slavery. And here's a complicating thing for us, because those founding fathers, although almost all of them knew slavery wasn't right, like Thomas Jefferson, he knew it wasn't right. But so many of them couldn't break loose from it, couldn't break loose of the finance of it. Jefferson knew that his life was a terrible contradiction. He struggles with it in his written materials. He knows he never lives up to the noble notions that he, that he uh, envisioned. And it's an anxious moment when I ever stand before anybody and say you ought to be a slave in light of our history. But here's what I must say as a Christian. If you want to know where good values come from, it doesn't come from your modern sense of rights. It doesn't come from your, uh, some sense of freedom that we can all give ourselves the freedom to do whatever we want. No, instead of autonomy, real value and real direction in life comes when you surrender your autonomy and you become a servant to the God who has reached out to you in love in Jesus Christ and has poured his spirit into you. And you owe him your purchased. You belong to him. And everything you'll ever be will come from him. Now I think there's a terrible sin when we would grant that kind of deference to any other thing. Or any person that would be a horrible sin. And slavery is a horrible sin. There's only one, one reality that deserves our unrestricted and our unfettered, our unrestrained allegiance. And that's to the God who rules the world. And if we saw ourselves for what we really are, hopeless, aimless, when we're doing what we want to do, we wreck our lives again and again. But strangely, we find life and we find meaning when we simply learn 
to trust this God and to obey his instructions. And I just need to tell you, I wish I could capture it for you and you could sense this kind of phenomenon that goes on for several centuries. It's something that just stands out. People around the Mediterranean rim and in the Far East, wherever Christianity went in the first several hundred years, just thought these Christians were so strange. What could have ever prompted them to act this way? They persecuted them. They hounded them. They mocked them. Why would you ever restrict yourself this way? Why would you ever live by these rules? They found them worthy of, of kind of derision. But I want to tell you again and again, they saw in these Christians not the lack of love and life, and joy, but they found these things manifested them. And you and I need to restore ourselves to these fundamentals if we're going to live right in a world that less and less cares what we say or thinks that what we say is important or, 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 or honors our system of values and so on. You and I need to be grounded in this. You are not your own. I've been bought, and there's nothing I could ever do to repay the debt that I owe to Jesus Christ, to God who loved me and sent his son. And that same God who loves me has put his spirit within me, and I can fight it, and I can deny it, and I can sort of suppress it, but... The reality is that if the Christian life goes forward, I think if it's genuine, it does. But if it does, it goes forward because we end up acknowledging the Spirit's place in our life. And we start yielding to that Spirit. And we recognize that it's not just our spirit and our soul that's important, but God thinks our bodies are important. And the resurrection signals that. And if you're not on board with where this thing is going, then you have to ask yourself, how am I in? How do I share? How do I participate in it? And I just want to challenge you. Paul has it right here. You belong to God. Your body is the temple. Your body matters. It's of consequence. It shares in the destiny and victory of God will be raised from the dead. And if we think these ways, if these ideas shape us, then we'll be different. We'll live differently. And the instructions about marriage and the disciplines of instruction and guidance from God won't be onerous but we'll find strangely that we flourish and we are healthy and whole when we find our lives in him. Paul's last word is sort of taking these all together and says this, so your stake in this world and your place in this world ought to be this. You're not the consumer. I'll get this, I, I want this, I'll take it, I, I'll get that. I, I, I'll, I'll desire this, I'll have it. That's not the way to live, and, and you'll crash and burn. But there's another way of live, living, and that is 
Let what I do in this body give glory to God. And the choices I make and the behavior I exercise, I'm going to let what I do bring God glory. And dear ones, I think that's an instruction that I urge upon us and I ask us to hold to the high standard uh, of Christian identity. If I'm right, uh, as culture keeps moving, we're going to be more and more outsiders. And it's going to be incumbent upon us that we can't just talk the language that everybody else is talking. Like, of course it's okay if they desired it, of course. I, I can't ask somebody to right, go against their desires. Or it, it's okay if they chose it. It, it, it. What's wrong with somebody if they choose it, right? Some behavior if they choose it. That this kind of strategy will not live, lead us to life or wholeness. But instead, we've got to be these countercultural people who think that wholeness and life and flourishing comes from not me ruling, but me being humble before the rule of God. And there's a way forward, and there's a hope, and our lives can stand out. Uh, the crazy thing about how culture is going and so on, I, I just want to say, if you maintain a Christian standard, your life is going to stand out more and more, and don't be surprised if people come to you and say, what's going on with you guys? Because all the rules they've been given, I'll be happy if I can just discover myself, find out what I want, do what I want. Nobody tells me I can't do it. All those rules end up in shipwreck. And they'll need to have someone like you who's a guide, who with the best we can, despite all our failures and stops and starts, I know we're not perfect, but again and again, if we can come back to this place where I want God's rules to rule over me, and if I'm not ruled by God, I'll, be, I'll, ended up, I'll end up being ruled and mastered, as Paul says, by something I picked up and I thought I want. But get, get, get how this works. You pick it up, but sometimes you can't put it down. You hear me? And you think you can manage it, but it manages you. And you think you can rule over it, but it rules over you. And we become slaves one way or the other. We can kneel before the God who loves us and live in his instruction. And that's the kind of slavery that leads to nobility. Or we'll be slaves to something we've chosen or something, even worse, something somebody convinced us that we needed. And there are two ways of life. And one slavery leads to life. And so I ask you, be reminded your body matters. It has a destiny and an appointment with God's victory over the world. You'll be raised from the dead. Even now, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You are the temple of the Lord. Be sure to show the glory of God in, to the people around you. And finally, we belong, lock, stock, and barrel, everything we are. We belong to God. And that's the only kind of slavery. that's decent in this world. The only kind of slavery that gives life, not takes it. 
the only kind of slavery that makes me whole. 